the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, August 31st. I'm Kieran Hancock. And on this week's show, we'll be looking at the European Commission's decision to direct the Irish state to collect €13 billion Euro in back taxes from US technology company Apple. We'll also have the first in an eight-part series profiling the 24 nominees for this year's EY Entrepreneur of the Year Awards in advance of the awards night in October. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. But first to Apple and the European Commission's finding that Ireland must collect €13 billion Euro plus interest from Apple in back taxes connected with two entities that were based here. Apple plans to appeal the ruling while the government is pondering its options and the ruling has also resulted in an enormous backlash in the United States. Joining me in the studio to explain the backdrop and to hopefully try and throw this story forward are Cliff Taylor, business editor of the Irish Times, Brian Keegan, director of tax at Chartered Accountants Ireland and we're joined by phone by Suzanne Lynch, our European correspondent. And Suzanne, it's with you that I'll start because you were at the Commission's uh, press conference yesterday yesterday in Brussels, just reminds us of exactly why the Commission wants Ireland to collect uh, $13 billion in back taxes. Yes, well, the announcement on Tuesday was the culmination of more than three years of investigation. Um, three years ago, the Commission wrote to, to Ireland on the back of the U.S. Senate uh, hearing requesting information. Now, we all obviously had been waiting for this judgment, but what is undoubtedly true is that it completely shocked people in terms of the figure, the 13 billion euro figure. Even the most seasoned competition experts did not expect it really to be this high. And really, the announcement came sooner than a lot of people had expected. It was announced in August, not September. And uh, the commissioner herself deployed a a 24-hour notice period rather than the two-week notification period that would usually be in place uh, for this kind of decision. So it was pretty dramatic scenes. It, 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 um, it, it dominated the global news agenda, not just uh, in Ireland, but across the world. Here in Brussels, there's huge interest in the story. And it's because, apart from the issue of, of Ireland's huge uh, bill, or Apple's huge bill, excuse me, it's one of the biggest EU competition cases of its kind. So it's really breaking new ground in terms of EU competition policy. Traditionally, the European Commission, in terms of its competition powers, concentrates on mergers and acquisitions, estate aid, etc. Getting involved in member states' tax is another issue. Yes, they have previously looked at other cases involving Belgium, Italy, etc., but never to this extent. So I think we're really seeing a kind of shift in direction in EU uh, competition policy um, that has been driven by the EU Competition Commissioner, uh, Margaret Vestager. Cliff Taylor, um, why the change attack, if you like, by the European Commission in, in terms of this? It's hard to know. I mean, there is speculation that the European Commission, uh, and particularly the Competition Commission, is trying to create new new ground for itself, if you like. We've seen over the last few years that the OECD has really taken the lead role in terms of coordinating global tax and how multinationals would pay tax. And there is a feeling, I suppose, that the European Commission wants to restake its ground here. Now, I suppose what's interesting, and as Suzanne has said, is the use of state aid, state aid rules to look at a tax case. And it remains to be seen if the European courts will judge that that is, in fact, you know, putting a square peg into a round hole or whatever metaphor you want to use, if that actually Mm. works in legal terms. You know, there were a few things uh, that were odd about the decision. Uh, Particularly, uh, I, I thought... The commissioner's statement that uh, she 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 held, or that the commission had held, that thirteen billion was owed to Ireland, but it was possible that some of the money was actually owed to other European countries, or was even owed to the United States. That seems to me a strange. Either Ireland is owed the money, or or, or or it's not, and I presume that's one of the things that would be looked at in an appeal. And also, the government has also suggested the issue of tax sovereignty will be, uh, you know, and and the commission's powers will be part of its. Uh, part of the appeal which which it, which it may take to the uh, European courts although uh, as we talk the cabinet is still is still discussing that yeah i mean let's just explain this for the benefit of listeners how this worked effectively these were sales generated uh, in europe that were brought back to ireland uh, via two entities yeah uh, it was determined that only the tax on trading profits in ireland um, yeah. should be paid and this mon- money essentially uh, was funneled back to the united states to pay for research and development but no tax uh, was paid on that. Is that right? In fact, a lot of the money came through Ireland and uh, went into an offshore cash pile that Apple still has of, of over $200 billion. 
and obviously there's a lot of controversy in, in America about a lot of US companies. Which but a chunk of it was used for R&D purposes. Yeah, well, it was it was used, I suppose, to a lot of it was used to pay for the R&D costs, you're right, so, so that there was a, a big intellectual property license uh, representing the research and development work that Apple had done. Uh, that was used as the device, if you like, to uh, to, to 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 put a charge on the uh, on the sales throughout Europe, and, and to effectively ensure that the amount of profit declared in Ireland was quite small. A, lo- a lot of companies have used uh, similar structures uh, I- in Ireland in, in uh, you know in the last fifteen twenty years. Apple's one does seem to have had some peculiarities, uh, particularly in terms of the way it was arranged, uh, and, and it is those peculiarities, and, and particularly the fact that. Profit was was split within companies, you know, sales in Ireland and sales overseas. It seems to have uh, seems to have been central to the European Commission decision. We haven't seen the full document yet. All we've seen is a press release. So, so, so yeah. Uh, the commissioner herself did make the point yesterday that if she had a tax bill that effectively was zero point zero five percent, reducing to zero point zero zero five percent, she'd take a very close look at her tax bill because it just wouldn't it wouldn't seem right for uh, your your tax bill to be so low. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a couple. There's a couple of points there. Uh, I suppose one is that uh, you know, should the Irish Revenue have agreed this deal, and should they have been more uh, proactive in investigating what Apple was doing? Now, I think the Revenue will say, look, we don't, we don't have what's called taxing rights on money that Apple earns in you know in, in overseas markets and legitimately takes out of uh, out of Ireland. You know, the way that accounting was done is one of the key things in the European decision. One of the key things the court has to has to uh, has to decide on. The fact of international U.S. companies paying very little tax on sales outside the U.S. has been very common and is one of the key things, I guess, in in the international debate, how the companies like Google, Microsoft, Facebook uh, and Apple have done this and how most of them have ended up with huge piles of cash offshore in the United States, which they can't bring back into the United States because if they do, it's, 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 uh, it's subject to tax. It seems a ridiculous situation, but it is the way that these companies yeah. have, have used to, to, to hugely reduce the tax bills on earnings outside the US market. Ron Keegan, you're a tax expert. Um, was this a sweetheart deal for Apple, whereby we turned a blind eye uh, basically to the circulation of money through Ireland in return for jobs and investment? Well, if it was a sweetheart deal, we're not very good at doing sweetheart deals, apparently. Um, this is a state aid case. I think one of the peculiarities of those state aid cases, normally when the Commission is looking at state aid, it is looking at a piece of legislation. It is looking at whether there is a section in a tax act somewhere that gives an unfair tax break to a particular type of company. And the classic example of that was the 10%, the old 10% rate that we used to give to manufacturing companies, where the, the, the Commission itself insisted that we move away to a single rate available to all different types of company. What the Commission is looking at here, though, is not a piece of legislation. It is looking at an administrative decision by the Office of the Revenue Commissioner. It's actually challenging how the revenue do their job as distinct from a particular piece of law passed by the Oireachtas. And I think that, that, that must be at the heart of government concern over this particular ruling, that they're actually challenging how our officials operate law not the law itself. And that strikes right to the very heart of sovereignty. It strikes right to the very heart of taxing rights. And, you know, it's almost a case of if you tolerate this, then your children will be next. What happens after that? This is, this is not just establishing a precedent on how, on how the Commission tackles state aid in law. It's a precedent on how the Commission tackles the administrative arrangements which a country enters into. And I think that gives us a particular spice that <laughs> 13 billion aside, it mightn't otherwise have. Yeah. Mind you, the advisory from Revenue um, back in the 90s and 2007, I think it was, um, it's non-binding, isn't it? It's non-binding and Revenue are always very, very careful to point out that it's non-binding. But fundamentally, um, corporation tax is a self-assessment tax. What you do is you present your facts and circumstances to the Revenue and they either accept them or they don't and you move on. Um, you can go to revenue, you can seek clarification on a particular treatment, on a particular allocation of profits, mm. and you can get a ruling on that. And those rulings only persist as long as you can confirm that the terms and conditions haven't changed. And right. if they have, all bets are off. So so what's behind this then? Is it the Commission deliberately targeting Ireland, deliberately targeting, uh, targeting Apple? Are we going to see more of these rulings, maybe in other countries? Or what, what's behind this? What's, what's the game at play here? <sighs> Well, one possible interpretation is that, you know, if this was any country, any company other than Apple, 
there mightn't be such a kerfuffle. And also, too, it just so happens that Apple is located here, where Apple to be located somewhere else. Because these, these pricing arrangements are common across Europe, and they're common with multinationals. It's not just the Irish revenue doing something for a particular multinational. This is standard practice, because if you have a multinational producing a product of any complexity, bits of it, as Cliff has already pointed out, are going to be you know, produced in different countries. So you've got to identify how much of it is properly taxable here and then tax it accordingly. And that, as well as at the root of the, you know, the, the, the state aid decision, it's not just Ireland they're suggesting didn't collect enough tax off, off Apple, it's other countries as well. So if you've got other countries involved, how can there be one co- country, one state aid granted? It's very hard to see that, Karen. Yeah. Um, Cliff, I suppose in normal circumstances, the government would love uh, to be able to recoup 13 billion euro in back taxes from uh, you know companies or individuals. But in this case, they're actually in quite a bind, aren't they? They are in quite a bind. Uh, it's a massive amount of money. And I think uh, the reason they're in such a bind is, 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 is that very fact that the amount is so huge. Were it to be a lower amount, it wouldn't be quite so significant, obviously, in the national finances. And, uh, you know, people might accept it. But the amount of money is so huge, I think, that it does create a, a real political difficulty for the government. Now, the reality, I suppose, is that, first of all, there's going to be a long legal process here, even if, you know, no matter what the Irish government does, Apple are going to appeal. Uh, they will have to pay us the money in the meantime. Uh, but obviously, if Apple are appealing and might win that appeal, we can't, you know, there's no point in us going to spend, going, going spending the money and then having to repay it to them in four or five years' time when they win their court case. So the money will go into some kind of holding account or escrow account. So whatever the Irish government does, the, the money won't be available to us. The second question then is, you know, will the appeal, will the appeal win or not? Uh, and then there's the issue that Brian raised there that perhaps some of the money isn't due to Ireland. Some of it may be due to Britain or Germany or France or, 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 or even the US. Um, so, you know, quite a mess in terms of whether we'll ever see any of this money. Uh, if we do, how much we'll see and, and when we might see it. Uh, nonetheless, the size of the figure and, and the very political difficulty of having to appeal against getting, you know, this huge lotto win is, is, is there's no doubt that that's hugely difficult for the government, both in the short term and even if they get over the short term issue, you know, over the next few months. Because every time there's a cutback or every time there's a strike or every time there's, you know, the budget, which isn't particularly as people only say, well, if only we'd taken the money from from, from, from Apple, you know, ignoring, I suppose, the realities of, of, of this. Brian. And, and this is money that's kind of been magic out of thin air. Um, you know, for every yin, there's a yang. Uh, for every additional euro spent in tax, um, there's one dollar, whatever it is, one dollar twelve cent being lost to Uncle Sam, and that is a huge preoccupation and priority for for the U.S. Treasury. Um, it's this is about really wh- where tax is being collected, not the overall amounts that are that, that are due, or you know, irrespective of what time they're time they're actually due. Somebody is going to be out of pocket here. Some other country is going to be out of pocket here if Ireland recovers this thirteen billion plus. There's no question about that. Yeah. And you know, we we haven't even reached, even started to consider the politics of of that particular I mentioned either. Yeah, and uh, Brian, where does this put the whole OECD process to try and bring some uh, cohesion? to uh, taxation across borders. Uh, we had this BEPS process um, that was underway. Where, where does that stand now in, in the light of this? I think ultimately it damages it because what the OECD have been desperately trying to do is try to apply a coherent set of principles on both sides of the Atlantic. And on the far side of the Atlantic, you've got the US Treasury balking against OECD ideas like country-by-country country reporting and then introducing their own new tax treaty which they're going to expect other countries to follow. And then on the European side, you've got rulings like this, which again are running counter to the BEPS principles of us all jumping in the, in the one direction. I'd say the guys in the OECD are scratching their heads and really wondering what's going on. Suzanne, this week it's Ireland and Apple that are in uh, the spotlight, but um, is the Commission conducting similar investigations uh, with other multinationals in other countries? Well, I've heard some rumours that the, another case against Luxembourg is imminent in the next few weeks. So it really does seem that Commissioner Vesker is really kind of go with this. And I suppose the question is, how long is a piece of string? And, um, you know, the significance, Ireland has long had a, it's always been a politically sensitive issue for Ireland and Europe, the issue of corporate tax. It surfaced during the bailout when the French president was vocally critical of Ireland. But I think what's worrying about this for Ireland going forward is that, as we said before, the competition wing of the commission is so important. Its decisions are enforced. They're binding. Yes, they can be appealed, but they have to be enforced in the first instance. In contrast, other proposals, for, like, for example, the CCCTB, country-by-country reporting, what happens in the EU system is that they are proposed by the Commission, but then they go to the Council. So Ireland and other countries, through their ministers, have a chance to shape them, amend them, discuss them. So 
what's really worrying is the kind of unilateral. If, if, the, if the competition division um, begins to really move with this and, and start tackling corporate tax, we're into a whole different area for Ireland. Are we into a situation where other countries uh, can be looked at? And let's face it, Ireland has got the biggest US multinationals in its country as, as its European headquarters. So we are bound to be... Um, yeah, you I know, think there's over 700 US companies have a headquarters in Ireland at the moment. Exactly. Now, as Brian said, tax rulings are common. Germany, I think, had about 18,000 last year. Tax rulings in and of themselves are not uh, illegal. Um, and a point was made here yesterday that only for the US Senate Committee, the Commission would not have known about the contents of these tax rulings. They've always been secretive. Now, new laws that were brought in by the Commission are going to oblige companies to or countries to reveal these tax rulings and share them uh, with other countries. That Those rules are coming in, in next year. But as I say, Ireland is pretty comfortable with those rules. They're already doing them at OECD levels, whereas the competition division is, a, is, a, is another level. And, and another worry from this is Brexit. Um, there is a possibility that when we know the shape of Brexit, Britain may no longer be bound by EU state aid laws. So will we see Britain capitalising on this and saying to companies, look, we're not going to be uh, affected by any EU competition cases against tax, so why don't you invest in our country? And, I mean, a lot of people are saying now it looks likely that Britain will eventually keep lowering... Well, I guess, I guess a lot rate. depends on the access they have to the single market, doesn't it? Well, it will, and this, this has to be all worked out. But again, I think it's... In the broader context of Ireland's relationship with Europe, with Brexit, uh, there is a fear that is Ireland kind of hitched to a much more protectionist continental Europe. And I think this decision suggests that it is. Right, we do still have some allies like the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and even smaller countries like Estonia, the Czech Republic, would support Ireland yeah. to be a bit more free market. Okay. But generally, the big countries, France, Germany, want to clamp down on tax, and that's the direction it's going in Europe. All right. Cliff, um, the US authorities are furious about this uh, decision. Why are they so angry? I mean, uh, they've been going around accusing uh, various territories uh, of being tax havens, mm. and they've been talking on high about uh, companies paying their fair share of tax, and they're outraged by this decision. What's going on? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> As Brian said, there is an issue here that if uh, Apple is taxed on all this money in Ireland, that when it eventually returns some of its cash pile to the United States, it won't be able to, the US revenue won't be able to get their hands on it. But I think at a broader level, you know, there's a bit of there's a bit of an irony here. A lot of this international tax planning by multinationals is based in its root on the US tax system uh, and particularly US laws about uh, what earnings companies are taxed on, uh, what earnings American companies are taxed on, and provisions which basically allow US companies to park money offshore and avoid paying tax on it unless it's returned to the United States. That's a bit of simplification. And Apple has something but that's like the, 200 billion. It is over 200 parked. billion uh, parked offshore. Uh, this is now an issue in the US uh, presidential election campaign. Donald Trump is suggesting, look, we need a special lower tax rate to allow companies to bring money home to America, create jobs in America. We still have to see what Hillary, Hillary Clinton says. But, you know, there have been at least three or four occasions over the last few years when the American political system seemed to be gearing up to do something about this. And every time they're pulled, you know, every time it's pulled back and you can only assume that the lobbyists are in Congress and the lobbyists are in with presidential advisors saying, look, you can't do this. You have to look after American companies. This is going to hurt American interests if you uh, change the tax system too quickly. But, you know, there is no doubt that that the American tax system is a key factor in this. And companies have been exploiting the difference between or the the interplay between the American system and the European system, including the Irish system, and that is, you know, that is at the at, at the uh, the root cause of why why they're yeah. paying so little tax. Uh, Brian Keegan, um, lots of suggestions that this could be very negative for Ireland in terms of attracting uh, foreign direct investment, and that American companies in particular might now look elsewhere. Um, do you think that's that's actually going to play out? I mean, where else would they go, for example? Well, every time something goes wrong, everybody says, oh, this is going to be terrible for foreign direct investment. And generally, those comments emanate from our most uh, vocal <laughs> competitors. You know, in the sphere, we, we abolished the double Irish uh, two years ago. Oh, this is going to be terrible for foreign direct investment. We've done this. We've done that. Oh, it's going to be dreadful for foreign direct investment. And still they come. And still the corporation tax yield keeps going up. Um, as long and as actually on that point, because it really spiked last year corporation tax in Ireland, and we know that Apple changed its structures in 2015. Um, so was that corporation tax spike, do you think, driven by Apple actually paying taxes in Ireland on, on all of these revenues that it was making? 
I, I think it would be very rash to say it was driven by the, the actions of any one company. There's, there's no doubt about it that the corporation tax system in terms of yield is very top heavy and that the vast bulk of corporation tax is paid by relatively few companies. And there's no doubt as well that part of that spike was attributable to this uh, intellectual property that Clifton Zan mentioned earlier on, you know, actually coming on shore. But the other side of it too has been that the employment figures are up. Companies are more profitable than they were. Companies have been pulling out of the recession. Companies that had a legacy of loss are now coming back into profit. I mean, there is other activities, you know, to, 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 um, to, to explain that. Reputationally, um, we're always in trouble when we're name-checked. We're in trouble, for example, inversions is one of the issues which springs to mind. President Obama name-checked Ireland as a, as a destination for inversions. Was that going to hurt? I don't know. I haven't seen too much evidence that it in actual fact has. This, what I think would really hurt is if we don't appeal this decision. And I think it will hurt because of the administrative element that I spoke about earlier. It's one thing having a piece of legislation, okay, and it's challenged under state aid rules, and you go and you change the piece of legislation, and that's it, end of story, and move on. And the thing is fixed, and you say, look, we have fixed that. But when you have your own revenue authorities' decisions being challenged on an administrative issue, then you have to challenge um, because even if there's only 13 euros in play instead of 13,000 million euros in play, you've got to back up the probity of your own revenue commissioners. Yeah. Otherwise, potential investors will look at Ireland as a destination and say, how flaky are they? Yeah. And we don't want that happening. Cliff, let's talk about that appeal because uh, it's a bit of a sticky wicket for the government. Um, the, it's a minority government. Um, it's got a number of independent members who might be a bit queasy about all of this. And uh, obviously, you've got Fianna Fáil then supporting the government by largely abstaining on votes and mm. uh, and so forth. And a lot of the left-leaning uh, members of the opposition have made it very clear that they believe that Ireland should accept this money and use it to pay for mm. social services and so forth. Could this bring down the current minority government? It could. Uh, I think the amount of money involved is so large that it is politically very difficult. Um, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, we may never see this money, uh, even if we don't appeal, uh, or, or it may we be. We may a not get a decision in the lifetime of this parliament. Absolutely. Even. Notwithstanding all that, I think the politics of this are, are, are to- because the amount of money is so large, are toxic. Uh, and the politics, when, as I say, when the budget is coming up, particularly, and there's very little leeway in the budget, I suppose to put in context, tax, cu- tax cuts and spending increases in the budget are, are, are expected to be around 1 billion. Uh, and this, you know, this amount of money is 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 is, thir- is thirteen billion. Uh, the state is tight for money. We're we're restrained by EU rules in terms of what we can spend. Um, so, you know, notwithstanding the reality of the length of time it might take to ever see any money, whether we might see any money, and the points that Brian is making, the actual politics of this are 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 absolutely toxic. So, uh, you know, even if the hurdle of of, of agreeing an appeal is 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 got over. Uh, I think this is going to be hanging over the government now for the, for, for the next few months uh, and, and, and beyond. Suzanne, what's the mu- mood music in uh, Brussels like in relation to uh, the stability of the government as a result of this uh, ruling? Um, I mean, I think there is very scant political public support for our position on this. Uh, most public, most voters in most countries want to see it clamped down by the EU uh, on tax avoidance. So I suppose there's kind of an existential question here. Has the EU overstepped its remit by by encroaching on, on the tax issues of a member state, or is it actually taking a leadership role in terms of tax avoidance, a global issue? Um, and I mean, I spoke, I think Brian Hayes, MEP, made the point that our small countries being singled out. I think he does have a point here. For example, I spoke to um, a senior person from another East European country recently who pointed out uh, that about the refugee crisis, that they were ordered by the Commission to, to take a number of refugees. And they tried to say to the Commission, if, if you do this, my government might fall. Um, and yet the Commission you know, pushed ahead anyway. And I think this is our example of that in Ireland. This is a huge issue for us nationally. Um, and we're, we're losing the battle, if you, in a sense. Um, so I do think... Um, in terms of getting support for our position, I think it's going to be a hard battle. And as Brian said there, the way we play this is going to be crucial in terms of our reputation. Um, but I think there is, unfortunately, little sympathy for Ireland's position, whatever about the legalities and, and uh, the soundness of the Commission's legal argument. Brian, for years people thought that uh, corporations were paying 12.5% tax on, on everything they did uh, in Ireland. And they thought, well, it's a low rate, but it's fair enough because the, they're creating a lot of jobs and so on. It actually turns out that a lot of them were paying damn all tax. Uh, here it wasn't even coming towards twelve and a half percent tax. Why? Why are companies so averse to paying twelve and a half percent tax on their profits out of Ireland? 
They are paying twelve and a half percent. Well, on traded on traded uh, uh, entities, yes, and, and on trading activities yeah, and, in Ireland, and twenty five percent on rental and twenty five percent on mm. interest and all the rest of it. You can only tax what belongs to the country. And this is the point of the Apple case. Revenue's argument is that this money did not belong to Ireland, therefore we couldn't apply 12.5% to it. Um, and, and but that it has, wasn't being taxed it. anywhere. That's a separate issue, and, that's, that, and that, has, that has got to do with the interaction of tax systems, and in particular the interaction of the American system, which is different to every other system in the world except the Eritrean, in terms of where it actually attributes um, where, where, where the profits arise and how they're, to, how they're to be taxed. These mismatches, go back to that point you made earlier about the OECD's uh, project to you know, homogenise the whole approach under, under BEPS, that, that we systematically eliminate these gaps and loopholes and places you know, where profits can kind of go off into the ether and only really ever get taxed when they're eventually returned home. Um, that's a separate discussion. The discussion here is did Ireland contravene state aid rules? And the revenue is saying, well, look, we looked at the Apple situation. We decided this was the amount of profit which was properly charged mm. with Irish corporation tax. And we charged 12.5% on it. End of story. Move on. Nothing to see here. And that will be the nub of their defence, I suspect. Yeah. Uh, Cliff, the Green Party said today that it would be a model for the government to appeal the case. I don't think, I don't think that's right. I mean, there's, there's two different... There's two different issues here. One is the the fact I think that everybody agrees, or most people agree, that multinationals have got away with paying far too little tax on their international earnings in recent years. I mean, it's completely indefensible uh, that if, you know effectively the shareholders of these big companies uh, are benefiting from an international system uh, that involves so little tax being paid on, on, on a lot of the money that companies make, particularly at a time when exchequers are so tight for cash and social services are served in so, in so many countries. But you have this specific issue that Brian mentioned. Is, is, this issue, is this money taxable in Ireland? It seems to me from any common sense point of view that it isn't. Uh, you know, it's as the government has been saying, iPhones made in, designed in California, made in China, sold in Germany. Uh, you could argue, you know, which of those three places are where that the tax should be paid. But to say it should be paid in Ireland, uh, I don't know. It seems uh, it seems like a stretch. Certainly, to say it should all be paid in Ireland, which is what the European Commission has said. They've, they've looked at all the money that Apple has earned uh, outside the Americas in a ten-year period and said Ireland should should have been taxing all that money. From a common sense point of view, that seems that seems bonkers. Right. So where does it go from here? Um, I don't know. We've, there's going to be an appeal, uh, whether the government joins it or not. Uh, so it goes into the European courts. It goes first to the European General Court, it then goes to the Court of Justice. Uh, whichever side loses in the first round is going to appeal in the second round. Um, f- is that going to be four years? Is it going to be five years? Uh, before we know what's going to happen. In the meantime, I guess Ireland's reputation has been uh, has been has been damaged. And um, there's the big question then about whether the government can can hang together in the face of this. And also, I think, the brewing of a huge transatlantic row uh, between the US and the EU uh, over the whole thing, the whole question of multinational tax. Brian, how do you see this playing out? Well, I think Tim Cook's open letter yesterday was absolutely crucial. Uh, where he has reinforced Apple's commitment to this country and you know reinforced his belief in the probity of the Irish system. And that will give a huge level of comfort to current US investors and also to other putative US investors who might be looking to establish themselves in this country. There's also a very interesting line in his letter where he said that uh, you know Apple favours uh, tax reform, but he feels there should be a dialogue between business politicians and citizens uh, about it. Now, that, that's a very interesting concept, isn't it? Let's bring citizens into the dialogue about what level of tax uh, companies should pay. Well, no, he has a point because f- ultimately a company is just that it's a group of people. It's a group of stakeholders. It's a group of shareholders. It's a group of employees. And, you know, if, if, you, if you paid out all the profits that a company made um, to its employees, for example, you would have no corporation tax, right? If you paid out, as a multinational, all your money and dividends back to the parent company, country, there would be no debate over who's getting what and why. So I think, I think that's a very, very, uh, a very very valid point. However, having said that, the very worst people to ask about tax policy are taxpayers. And particularly in an particularly inter- angry ones. Particularly angry ones, and particularly taxpayers in an international situation where it is always easiest to tax the foreigner. And I think we're victims of that tendency to tax the foreigner when you can. Right. Suzanne, I'll leave the last word to you. Uh, how do you see this playing out in Brussels? 
Well, uh, in the immediate term, we're going to see another proposal on the CCCTB uh, by the end of the year from the Commission. And this is this Apple judgment has really kind of galvanised support for that. Um, but the next question would be, what next uh, for Commissioner Vestager? Luxembourg does look like an obvious target because of the fact of LuxLeaks. There are already documents in the domain and the belief is that the Commission uh, competition officials are already trawling through do- those. Uh, but of course it is possible that they will turn to Ireland and other countries uh, to investigate more uh, state aid cases. Um, so in parallel to that, though, we will see Commissioner Moscovici, the Economic Commissioner, continue to bring forward these rules by country, by country reporting exchanging information on tax ratings and the CCTTB and I, and I think this judgment gives that new momentum. OK, Cliff Taylor, Brian Keegan and Suzanne Lynch, thank you for joining us. We'll take a short break now and we'll return with the first of our profiles of nominees for this year's EY Entrepreneur of the Year Awards. Back in a few moments. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Now, the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme has been running in Ireland for the past 18 years with the Irish Times an established media partner. This year, 24 entrepreneurs have been nominated in three categories with the winners to be announced at a gala dinner in City West in October. Over the next eight weeks, we plan to profile the various nominees to find out about them and their businesses. And we hope to have the winners in studio after the gongs have been handed out. First up are Gillian Maxwell of Retailer Tiger, who is nominated in the Emerging category, and Kieran O'Keefe of Mobile Web Ads, who's been selected for the International Award. I've asked each of them to spend about one minute describing their company in what's known in the business as an elevator speech. And kicking us off is Kieran O'Keefe of Mobile Web Ads. My company is called Mobile Web Ads, founded in 2002 by my, my good self. We operate in the area of the mobile internet, which is a vast a market, probably even bigger than the, the what we call the PC internet. Um, we operate in the specific area of mobile advertising, and we operate a stock exchange uh, or a marketplace which allows uh, mobile website owners to effectively make their space available to uh, thousands of advertisers all over the world um, and the advertisers will effectively bid for that space and pay on a, a cost per click basis like you would do on Google. Uh, we serve um, 45 billion ads uh, per month across 150 countries um, and that puts us probably in the top 10 in the world versus uh, rival services like Google AdMob and Apple iAds. Um, uh, we're a very global company by dint of the fact that uh, the mobile internet is, is by its nature extremely global. Uh, our um, number one country by revenue is the US, number two country is India, and there are three Latin American countries, Brazil, Argentina, and uh, Mexico in our, in our top 10. So um, uh, one of the things we're proudest of actually is cracking the Japanese market, which is extremely difficult for Western companies. And, and the UK, which is our home market, is less than 8% of our business. So we, our business reflects the, the, the global nature of the mobile web. Uh, we've had sort of uh, very high growth and that we've been growing certainly in the early years at over 100% a year. But those days are over now, certainly in terms of organic growth. So. Our next path is launching new marketplaces, but uh, additionally doing acquisitions to keep the top line growing. Uh, and we've just agreed our first acquisition of a company in a far-flung part of the world to fill out uh, a part of the world that we did we hadn't covered. So yeah, so a bright future. We have we've had some very very difficult years at the start, five years of it going nowhere. Um, but now in two thousand and nine, we hit the uh, classic hockey stick, which happens when. A company has no growth and then it has exceptional growth. Uh, and the event that changed everything for us was really the launch of the Apple iPhone in 2007. So, yeah, looking forward to a bright future from here. OK, thank you, Kieran. Uh, we'll now go to Gillian Maxwell. 
Hi, um, so my name is Gillian Maxwell and uh, with my husband, Niall Stringer, who's also a co-nominee, we run a business called Tiger. Um, so Tiger, uh, we have 23 stores in Ireland and one in Northern Ireland. We opened our first store in 2011. And I suppose to, to describe Tiger to somebody who hasn't been into a Tiger store, it's a little bit of everyday magic, a little bit of madness. We're trying to offer design-led products that are low cost but high value. Um, so we're really trying to create a shopping experience for customers. We have great music, great lighting, but fantastic products beautifully displayed and great customer service from our, our, our terrific teams. So trying to offer that really special shopping experience, but in a low cost environment. Okay, Julian, thanks for that. Uh, Kieran. we might just um, start with you. I heard you mention the fact that, you know, your competitors include uh, Google and Apple. It must be pretty daunting taking on those two giants of the internet. Yeah, we, they have, um, we don't compete with them at the search level, nor do we compete with Apple at the, at the product level, but they have subsections that we complete, compete with. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, competing in Silicon Valley full stop is, uh, has always been the most difficult thing for us because not only are they extremely bright, ambitious, they're so heavily funded um, and have uh, got aggress- very aggressive targets and always global targets. The, re- the thing that we have done that's probably, again, a bit of an Irish thing, really, we have been prepared to go and crack markets long before even them. So I mentioned Brazil, Argentina and Mexico and India and Japan, um, Google were kind of late putting their resources into those markets. So we carved out a niche in, the, in, in that area. Uh, but yes, it's, it's extremely scary. And we, we've hit, the, the, uh, Google started competing even more harder in January 14. And it, uh, it, it caused our business to really go through a turbulent time two years ago where I had to, to, to lay off people to respond and focus more on our technology rather than a hiring spree, which I'd gone on. So. Yeah, it's it's pretty brutal uh, competing against them, and literally you can be a hero down to a zero within sort of three months. It can change that quickly. Um, But I I think our ability, like most Irish people do, to to get on a plane uh, has, has saved us. Yeah. Just tell us a little bit about your background, uh, Kieran. Before you launched um, this business, um, tell us a little bit about where you come from. I I understand you're a Calorglan native and, uh, you know, the skills you picked up along the way, as it were. Yeah, I'm I'm a Calorglan man. Uh, We're headquartered in London now with offices um, from Japan through to to California. But uh, I'm a hard to carry man and I spend a lot of my time at home. Um, And uh, yeah, it's funny growing up. Bizarrely enough, Kerry outside of uh, Dublin has got the most finalists and the most success in this competition. Um, and uh, in my town in particular, Kilordan has had a number of representatives in the past, Jerry Kennelly being one and uh, Brian McCarthy being another. So I don't, and I think that came from a, uh, we had a great education system with um, a particularly helpful headmaster who focused, who told us that success was not necessarily a dirty word. And, um, and uh, I, I don't know, we were all sort of taken by our football heroes and I, I think the business people kind of followed them as well. So and I did a, um, a computer science degree. I'm a techie by background, uh, but left uh, Ireland as part of the, what was called the Ryanair generation in the early 90s when literally there was no work in Ireland. I think half my class left immediately. Um, so, uh, yeah, so started, but I, I worked for Barclays, uh, direct from university and then left them two years to the date after joining them, having kind of learned my trade and started uh, building businesses from the age of 24, really, um, in, uh, mostly international started actually my first business in India, uh, Frankfurt and, uh, and London. Um, so yeah, I've, and this, but this has been the really first major success that I've had but it's been a long time in, in the developing now to 2002, 15 years. And now we've hit, hit pay dirt just recently. Well, in the last, well, since 2009, which isn't so recent, but yes. Okay, we might come, come back to that in a few moments. Uh, Gillian, would it be fair to describe you as an accidental entrepreneur? Because you were in London, I, I think, in 2010. You needed an umbrella. It was raining, a bit like it is in Dublin today. You needed an umbrella and you popped into a tiger store and, and it all sort of stemmed from that. 
Sure. I think I'm the accidental entrepreneur, but uh, Niall, my partner, is not. He has had a series of businesses and I suppose I was the supportive partner for a long time. And even when we started Tiger, I was still the supportive partner in my nice, steady public service job. Because you were working in Trinity College. I was. And uh, and so when we saw, I mean, our initial, you know, when we brought Tiger initially, we thought, oh, four or five shops. We did not think we would get to 24 um, and and we'd hope to get to 32. But I I suppose we opened the first shop and, and immediately saw the, the positive feedback and the let's just talk about figures. that for a moment because you walked into the shop in London in 2010 you thought wow this is a great idea yeah. but how did you actually go about putting it into practice because Tiger is a Danish right. concept yeah. um, so obviously you came back to Ireland and, and it went from there well, just before we even came back to Ireland in the airport that night we emailed them and said you know this is an amazing concept we love the store I, I went a little crazy in the shop in London and blew my Ryanair budget coming uh, or weight allowance coming home and we pr- approached them that night in the airport and uh, uh, over a short period, uh, we we've travelled to Copenhagen. I mean, like Kieran said, we got on a plane because we we just we realised this was a great opportunity. Um, we met them, and I think within a sort of six month period, we had opened our first store in Dunleary. And that was in the teeth of a recession. I mean, yeah. the the troika had come here. We were just yeah. beginning our bailout yeah. uh, program. I mean, people thought we were crazy. I mean, my, my my I think my mother's just forgiven me for for thinking of of a retail business in two thousand and eleven. But we, you know, I. I I think we both love the concept and I think the price point for value and uh, was was really key you know and I think a recession was good for us because we were you know customers people can't afford a new kitchen but they can afford to go in and buy four nice new mugs and some napkins and they were able to pretty up their their kitchen so the disposable income we were still within that range and so so recession was was really good for us starting the business we probably would have had less opportunity to grow as quickly equally uh, if it hadn't been recession I think landlords would have been less interested there would have been more competition for good units um, whereas we were able to go in and negotiate and and, 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 go, and get some good deals in terms of uh, yeah, the units that we're in. And just tell us about your background because you were in, in Trinity College mm-hmm. in fact you were so uh, my you took a career HR, break. Yeah, yeah. My, my background's HR um, I'd run a business uh, I'd lived in, abroad for a while um, like Kieran one of those people who f- finished school and went abroad um, and came back and had started a business here for a while at the beginning the Celtic Tiger and then worked for the Special Olympics when they came to Ireland as a full-time member of staff and at the end of that I as part of the CPL ran a, an outplacement program and I went into Trinity and 10 years later left there to start Tiger so uh, HR is my background Niall's a builder by trade um, and he's run a, a successful uh, still runs a successful building company and uh, uh, but saw the opportunity and, and, and had sort of had previously run various different other building related companies but this was the first time we'd stepped out of that sphere Right okay and Tiger is a Danish owned company so it's a joint venture essentially with the Danish Absolutely. parent is that right? It's a partnership so they own 50% and we own 50% and I suppose you know in a franchise model you're you know here you go there's a secret sauce off you go they've got skin in the game they're involved in the business but nobody's going to run and grow a business like owner managers so we're running the business and growing at the speed we want to grow at um, and, and so that's the, that balance that partnership works really well Yeah so tell us about some of your best sellers I mean let's contextualise this Where where's your best outlet what's your best uh, performance store at the minute They're very different I mean in terms of turnover uh, the Patrick Street and Nassau Street would be our largest turnover Patrick Street in Cork Yes and, and Nassau, Nassau Street in Dublin, Dublin. Um, in terms of uh, the most profitable uh, they're, they're, they can vary mm. um, so in terms of the best sellers I'm always shocked we do this huge range of colourful candles and white candles are always our best seller water is a best seller red ribbons um, umbrellas Umbrellas sell really well. And initially, Tiger began selling back 25 years ago in in Denmark. That was one of the things that they specialised in. I suppose the most interesting products that we're developing is is collaborations with designers. So we've just had a collaboration with a a designer called Masaki Kawai. In September, we'll have new products coming in with a collaboration with David Shrigley, who's a Turner Prize artist. And, you know, those for me are the exciting products, things that are really cutting edge design, but are, are offering, we're offering them at sort of five and ten euros. Right. Karen, just to come back to you, I mean, uh, we often talk about the secret sauce that goes into making an entrepreneur. Just curious to know, did you always want to work for yourself? Had you always got this ambition to be an entrepreneur or was it something that happened to you, you know, almost by accident? Yeah, I mean, I uh, went working for myself, to say, almost immediately. Uh, well, two years after joining Barclays, uh, I've never seen myself being part of the world. Uh, um, I'm a very, 
whatever the opposite to risk averse is, I'm that person. Um, I can. Uh, I think entrepreneurs are capable of backing themselves and are willing to back their judgment in the face, as Gillian said, of of um, uh, maternal advice, which is uh, completely the opposite. Um, so um, we had a debate in in I think either MIT or Harvard about whether entrepreneurs are made or can be um, produced, and I suspect uh, it's it's about halfway between the. There's certainly some common skills that you can learn, but you never learn the ability to really back yourselves in the face of uh, to be as, as boneheaded, as foolhardy as an entrepreneur needs to be. That, that's something just an, an innate thing. So, um, yeah, I always wanted to be my own boss. I could never see myself working for anybody else now uh, should anything go wrong. And thankfully, it, it, I don't need to anymore. Um, but uh, and I, I suspect many of the other entrepreneurs would uh, would be of the same mindset. But where do you see this business in five years' time? I mean, a lot of Irish tech-related companies, if you like, they grow to a certain size, and then generally they get they get acquired by uh, one of the big players in, in the marketplace. Um, and, and maybe that entrepreneur goes off and does something else, or you know, maybe they don't. But wh- where do you see yourself and, and mobile web ads? How do you see it evolving? Um, do you think it'll still own this business in five, ten years' time, or or will it be part of a bigger player, possibly part of a Google or an Apple or someone else? I think to, to, to back up my um, statement that a ba- an entrepreneur needs to um, be either foolhardy or back his own judgment. Uh, we did have a number of offers for the company. Uh, we actually put it on the block two years ago, and uh, we actually had seven offers for the company, But and I said no, basically. I didn't think they valued the company high enough versus the um, opportunity, uh, which is the mobile internet, which is vast and is only just getting going. It's like 99 on, 1999 on the, on the, on the uh, sort of the desktop internet. Um, so I put my money where my mouth is. Uh, we've stayed independent. I think I would hope that uh, Flotation is in our relatively near future um, in London. We've already been discussing it with with uh, some investment banks over here. So um, yeah, so that that's I, I would see us holding out for another while longer. Um, yeah, what, I've got what, lots what? more ideas. Uh, we tend to launch new companies out of our existing co- companies. Oh, sorry, out of our existing company. So, yeah, I, I don't see myself stopping anytime soon, nor needing to um, go on to something else. I will say the one thing that I would qualify on that is you do have to recognize that your skill set is often limited to the startup phase. So I brought in, you know, experienced uh, managers who know how to take the company from, you know, um, you know $50 million to beyond that. Um, and... Um, and, and that's necessary to to not believe in your own hubris, but to, to recognize your limitations and bring in people. So, but if you do the do that, if you augment your team, you can stay in control and keep growing and growing and growing rather than having to sell out. So, how much is the business worth at present? Do you reckon? <laughs> I'll I'll pass on that one. To be honest, um, a lot. Gillian, <laughs> right. let's uh, talk a little bit about the future for uh, Tiger. You're planning a rebrand. Uh, yes. Everybody knows the Tiger name, I think, at this stage. Mm-hmm. But you're planning a rebrand, a very interesting one as well. Tell us about that. We're, we're moving the, the name to Flying Tiger Copenhagen uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, internationally, it's a, we, we have some issues internationally with the name Tiger. There's Tiger Beer, Tiger Sweden, clothing. Um, and, but more importantly, I suppose we feel the Flying Tiger Copenhagen encapsulates what we're doing a bit more. Flying Tiger is something completely whimsical and nonsense and... Uh, captures your imagination that way. Copenhagen re- amplifies the Danishness and the, where we're from. I think for consumers, they're going to look at it and say, oh, they're Danish, not Swedish. And that will be about it. We'll still look the same uh, in terms of the interior of the store. Our products will still be great and our customer service won't change. So I don't think it'll make much difference. But for us from a brand, it's important. And where does the company go? Because I guess there's only so much growth. There's only so many stores you can open in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, where is this business going to be in five or ten years time? Do you sell out? Do you become part of a different group? Or Who knows? That's, that's still Do you move a, to different markets? Maybe. Potentially. That's uh, something we would always look at. I, I think we, we have a 
a job to do. And you know, we, we've we've talked about embracing the airplane while we're, or building the airplane while we're flying it. We've got this rapid period of growth, and and like Kieran said, it's important that we, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, that you identify the skills that you have and the skills, more importantly, the skills you don't have. Um, and so we're in this phase of you know making sure that our stores are are really performing, and we have some growth left in Ireland. So that's really our focus for the moment in making sure that we're running the best business possible. And finally, Kieran, um, you mentioned about uh, your school in Kerry and how there seems to be something in the air down there. It seems to produce so many entrepreneurs. Uh, if you were to go back to that school uh, tomorrow, let's say, what advice would you have for budding entrepreneurs in the classroom? Um, in, in the classroom, I think advice for entrepreneurs themselves are do finish your university education. Um, you don't have to do what... Um, um, Bill Gates did and drop out of college and all that sort of stuff. But once you've finished your university education, I would say just uh, follow your instinct. Be prepared to make multiple, multiple mistakes because you, you know an entrepreneur, generally speaking, will take I don't know at least ten years to, to to build a business and has to stick into it and make you know make a thousand decisions across that ten years and get nine hundred of them right if you're doing well. Um, I think that the main thing is role, uh, for, in terms of educating the next generation of entrepreneurs is role models. Um, you know, we had role, uh, you know, as I say, Brian McCarthy of Fexco, I remember won uh, the Irish Entrepreneur of the Year back in 87, even before the current program. And uh, that really hit me between the eyes as something that uh, was worth achieving rather than, you know, you know, trying to become a Kerry footballer or <laughs> trying to be a doctor or something like that. It just made, it raised my awareness. And that, that sort of role model, um, sort of hub type um, uh, uh, ecosystem stuff is what uh, makes the next generation come on rather than um, explicit education, I think. So the more we celebrate our entrepreneurs and the more we make people aware of them and say they're great people and they're generating wealth and jobs and, um, and, and success is not a bad thing and money is not necessarily a bad thing either. I think that will get through to the next generation and then, then they will plough their own furrow. Julian, same question for you. I think the biggest lesson any entrepreneur can learn is that, you know, failure is not failure. And, you know, to learn from your mistakes and move on and to not be crushed by it. Um, you know, uh, I think that's huge. I, I, I absolutely agree with Kieran about role models. Um, and I think as entrepreneurs, it's it's a requirement of us to not only be role models, but to act as mentors and to make ourselves available to people. And that's hard when, you know, your time is pushed. But I think, you know, we have a, an obligation to to act as mentors and support the next generation of entrepreneurs coming up. Um, and I think I, I also agree with Kieran in terms of, you know, study what you are studying, stay there, enjoy the college experience because it's hard work when you get out there. Yeah, right. OK. And talking about college, because you were, you did take a career break from Trinity College and um, the last time we spoke, you, you said you were just about to decide whether to go back or whether to stay with the business. So have you made that decision? I'm staying staying with Tiger, colour, pinning my colours to the mast. I, I mean, Trinity was super. It was such a great experience. And to have that flexibility of being able to know when we were starting a, a retail business in the middle of a recession, to you know have a, a kind of a fallback and to know that I could go back there was, was fantastic. And I'll be in their debt and we'll serve on committees and help with whatever I can. But, uh, you know, I think uh, my, my adventure continues with Tiger. Okay, Julian Maxwell and Kieran O'Keefe, thank you for your time. Okay, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Brian Keegan, Cliff Taylor, and Suzanne Lynch, and our EY nominees, Kieran O'Keefe and Julian Maxwell. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow our feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. <laughs>